We're going to see a theme recurring throughout this chapter that I really want to highlight, and that is the response of individuals to Jesus' ministry. So we started last week, uh, Pastor Corey brought us into the beginning of the chapter with verses 1 through 11, and this is Mary washing Jesus' feet with her hair. So it says in John 12, then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. Now, I don't know what nard smells like, but I read that word and I think teenage boy. And if you... Now, it's probably not teenage boy, but if you've ever raised a teenage boy, you understand the way that that essence can fill a house. If you ever want to, if you're, if you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, come to youth group. You're welcome to join us, and I guarantee you, you will understand the essence of nard filling a house. But the, the important thing to take away from this is how Mary responded to Jesus, Right, they are gathering in Bethany to set the scene. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the grave. We spent the last few weeks talking about Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the grave, and they are finally eating together in the upper room. They have a moment of peace together, and what does Mary do? Something really unexpected. She washes Jesus' feet, but not with water that was traditional, with the essence of nard. This is expensive, right? Nard oil, the Bible actually tells us that it would have been worth a year's wages. Now, I don't, uh, I have never been a cologne guy. Uh, My wife is not a perfume gal, but I have definitely met some. So I think I understand what a year's worth of wages looks like in a little bottle with a on it, right? And Mary just takes that bottle and dumps it on his feet. See, this oil was expensive, and it represented the reverence that Mary had for her Lord. He was worthy of praise and honor. This wasn't a waste of an expensive thing. It's a recognition of Jesus' Godhead and his worth to her. He truly meant something enough to her that she was giving all that she had in that moment. And it wasn't just the oil was expensive. It was that her hair was used to wash his feet. See, 1 Corinthians 11.15 says, Isn't a woman's long hair her pride and joy? In Bible times, the length of a woman's hair would be a, a representation of her societal status and standing. As many women, I'm sure, can attest to, uh, the longer your hair is, the more difficult and time it takes to take care of it. Now imagine you don't have showers, blow dryers, product, running water, The longer hair you have, it takes so much time and effort to take care of it. And Mary took her hair and knelt down and washed Jesus' dusty, dirty feet with her hair. Now, I know for a fact that Mary is not my wife. Uh, I love my wife very much, but one of her fears is feet. So I can tell you right now that this would not have happened if my wife was following Jesus on that road to Bethany. But Mary did this thing. She took her hair, which was her glory, 
and she offered it to her Lord. She didn't just offer her possessions, right? The worldly things she had, the oil of nard. She offered who she was as a woman. She was humbly saying, Jesus, I put you above me, both with my things and with my life. That's the first response to Jesus. But like I said, we're going to see a second response. In verses 4 through 6, Judas responds to this act of love for his master. John writes, But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wage. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole for himself. See, Jesus to Judas was common. He wasn't worth a year's wages. He wasn't worth giving of himself. And so the money would have been better spent on the poor or the needy. But that leads us kind of to the second thing of Judas was also really not willing to give of the money. Could you imagine being a disciple walking the long road with Jesus and you still feel the need to steal from the disciples? Like everything that you need is provided for you by the people you meet along the road. In our youth group, we have been watching The Chosen and to watch the way that people lived their lives in this day and age. Judas shared with everything the disciples had. They ate their meals together. They drank their drinks together. They walked together. They slept together in the same houses on the same floors. Why did he need money? Because Judas had a love that was not for Jesus. It was for worldly possessions. See, Jesus was common to Judas, and the money was the glory of Judas. He valued the things of the world greater than the things of God. But as we read this, there is one further response, not to this act, but to the ministry of Jesus. See, Mary isn't responding just to the resurrection of Lazarus. Mary is responding to Jesus' ministry. Judas is also responding to the whole of Jesus' ministry. And so the Jews, and the Jewish leaders specifically, also responded to the raising of Lazarus. John 12, 9 through 11 says, Now a large crowd of Judeans learned that Jesus was there, And so they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to kill Lazarus too. For on account of him, many of the Jewish people from Jerusalem were going away and believing in Jesus. Could you imagine being Lazarus in this moment? Right? You are dead. You are with the Lord in paradise. You get raised back up, and now people are out to kill you again. (laughs) That's a rough break, man. But why were the Jewish leaders responding this way? See, they knew something that Lazarus didn't. They were concerned for a great many things. What you have to remember is that in the grand history of Jewish uh, history, many things are going on. Currently, Judea, which would be modern-day Israel and Jordan, the Middle East, along the Mediterranean there, is occupied by Rome. And... Israel was worried because they were afraid that Rome was going to come in, put them to death, burn their temple down, and scatter them to the winds, utterly destroying Israel forever. See, what they had forgotten 
was the covenant that God had made with his people, saying that they would never be utterly destroyed from this world. Their concern was for their country. They were worried that Rome would come in and destroy them. They were worried about their religion, that Rome would come in and burn their temple down. And we actually see this in the following verses. They make reference to exactly what they were worried about. They were worried from a leadership position in their nation. But it was truly their power that concerned them. Right? These are the people that made the decisions. They were the ones that sat in the high places, in the temple. But Jesus came to break those traditions. And so this brings us to the final response, the crowd's response. John 12, 12 through 19. We're going to spend quite a bit of time here. So if you would please stand for the reading of the word. For though the grass may wither and fail, the word of the Lord stands forever. John 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. They began to shout, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, people of Zion. Look, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things when they first happened. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that were written about him and that these things had happened to him. So the crowd who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about it. Because they had heard Jesus had performed this miraculous sign, the crowd went out to meet him. And thus the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you can do nothing? Look, the world has run off after him. Our dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for its edification. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is called the triumphal entry. As we come into our Easter season, this is a story that many of us heard. I remember in children's church listening and making crafts of donkeys. Right? Jesus is coming in on a donkey. And I was reading about this. And what is the importance of a donkey? Why a donkey? Well, it's because Jesus was humble and because of fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. But what did the people expect? See, the Romans that would have inhabited this region at the time had a tradition for how they would go about entering into a city in victory. It was called the Roman Triumph. See, whenever a Roman general was victorious on foreign soil, killing at least 5,000 of the enemy and gaining new territory, he was given a Roman Triumph when he returned to the city. It was like, uh, how many of you guys know what a ticker tape parade is? All right, this is a very uh, old school thing. For those of you that are younger, that's where they would march you through the city streets and they would like throw confetti in the air, right, as, as a way to honor you. They did this for veterans back in the day. They did this for generals throughout history. There have always been celebrations of returning, conquering generals. And so the Roman generals would not only have this parade, but they would, they would come in on a big white horse, the biggest they had, their war horse. And they would parade behind them all of their captives. And they would come to the center of the city where there was a Colosseum. See, in Roman towns, we think of the, the Colosseum of Rome as like, oh, that was the Colosseum. But in reality, almost every single town in Rome had a Colosseum. 
And so the general would enter the town with his trophies on his horse and his slaves behind him, and he would walk to the Colosseum, and then he would make his slaves fight animals in the Colosseum. And it was a very happy, frantic, crazy madness that would come over the population as their general had killed 5,000 people, and we're going to watch more people die. That's what it means to be a conqueror, is to bring death to others. But our Lord's entry into Jerusalem did not mimic this Roman triumph. He didn't come to bring death to others. And what's important is the difference of how he entered. See, he entered not on a horse, but on a donkey. Now, it's not only the Roman tradition, but also the Jewish tradition of the time for conquerors to return on horses. See, at the time of Jesus, we would call this, you know, around, uh, you know, the 30s A.D., right? What does A.D. stand for? That's right, in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. I'm glad people pay attention. But we had uh, just about 100 to 200 years earlier, we had the Maccabean Revolts. So before Rome had taken control of Judea, there was a dynasty called the Seleucid Dynasty. Everybody say Seleucid. It's a fun word to say, Seleucid Dynasty. And the Hebrews that were there at the time overthrew the Seleucid Dynasty. And we actually have the writings of this time. It's the Old Testament apocryphal books of the Maccabees, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And in 1st Maccabees 13.51, it says, On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because the great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. See, what's important here is they entered with praise and palm branches. See, in the time of Jesus, when Jesus entered that, they gave him waving palm branches. They would put it down on the ground. We actually have coins from this time in the history of Judea where they have stamped palm branches into the coin. It meant so much, a symbol of freedom to the people of Israel. And so when they laid down these palm branches, they were expecting that Jesus was coming to conquer just as the Maccabees had. See, the Maccabees would enter on their giant horse and they would get the praise of the people after defeating a great enemy. But the key here is after defeating a great enemy. See, the Jewish crowds kind of jumped the gun a little bit. What they didn't know was that Jesus had come to defeat an enemy. It just wasn't the one they wanted. And so we then get this idea of Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is English for two words. Hoshana. Everybody say, Hoshana. That means save us now. Literally, salvation now. Salvation now. So they are crying out, Hoshana, 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 Hoshana. And that makes a lot of sense if you're a Christian. We're like, yeah, yeah, they wanted salvation. But they were not crying out for salvation from sin and death. They were crying out for salvation from Rome. Because just as the Maccabeans had saved them from the Seleucids, they were looking to Jesus to be a mighty general that would charge in on his horse and overthrow the Roman government. But that's not who Jesus was. And we actually saw this 
as uh, they even gave him the name. They said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They acknowledged that Jesus is the king of Israel. Right? The, the priests and the, the Sadducees and Pharisees are saying, look, the world has run off after him. I can't do anything. They're calling him king of Israel. Imagine this from a Jewish perspective. There is no sin and death and Jesus resurrecting. Right? You have priests that are trying to hold a nation together. You have Pharisees and Sadducees that are trying to stop themselves from being destroyed by Rome. They're living in fear, forgetting that their God was a conqueror who saved them just 200 years ago, let alone three, four, five, six, seven, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago. God continually saved and blessed his people. They're living in fear. They're huddling, going, Oh my gosh, they're calling him a king. Rome is going to come kill us all. They're going to burn the temple down. None of us are going to be left. We've got to stop this guy. But all of them misunderstood. See, the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. They denied him. He's not the king. And the crowd, which gathered and said, save us now, save us now, would soon come and say, crucify him. Crucify him. See, Jesus did not come to be a Jewish conqueror. He came to be a Jewish victor. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. Some other background information. As you guys know, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Now, Bethany is where he was staying. And in Bethany is where many of the herds were gathered. Because as I've been reading through numbers and you listen to how many sacrifices would take place on Passover, it's like on the first day we sacrifice one of everything. And then on the second day we sacrifice two of everything. There are 12 days. Goodness gracious, that's one family. We've now sacrificed a hundred different things. Thousands of animals were sacrificed to the Lord at the time of Passover. And so Jesus came in from Bethany riding on an unblemished young donkey that would have been set aside for Passover as a sacrifice, as the foal of a young and he was so prepared to be that Jewish victor, not a conqueror. He wasn't coming to Jerusalem to expel the Romans and to fight. He was coming to be a victor over sin and death. What's interesting here is that his kingdom was not a kingdom of earth. And he himself said that many times. People just kind of forgot that part. He came to bring a kingdom of heaven. And even the disciples missed the signs. John himself says, look, none of us remembered this at the time, that it was important that he was riding a donkey. But, you know, looking back, it sure did fulfill prophecy. And then we all remembered this prophecy from Zechariah. Now it makes sense. So we have the response of the people to Jesus. 
Right? We've had this story of Jesus raises Lazarus, Mary washes his feet, Judas chastises her, the Jewish leaders try to kill Lazarus and Jesus, the crowd welcomes him into the city. They rush ahead of him, laying down palm fronds in the way of the Maccabean revolts. And Jesus ministers to the people for the last time publicly. John 12, 20 through 23 says, Now some Greeks were among those who had gone up to worship at the feast. So these approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and they both went and told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I want you to think about that last sentence. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How many times have we read in the book of John, Jesus say, the time has not yet come. Could you imagine being a disciple? And every time, Jesus, is it time? No, the time has not yet come. Jesus, is it time? Are you ready? No, the time has not yet come. Jesus, are you ready? No, the time has not yet come. Finally, these Greeks come, and Jesus says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, this meant that Jesus' ministry had truly spread. It had reached the farthest corners of the world. These Greeks, if you hear what it says, they had come to worship at the feast. Right? These are Greeks that were in the, the fringes of the Hebrew world. These were not natural-born Jewish people, but they were people who were God-fearing. There's actually a specific word that is used in this named the Hellenoi. Everybody say Hellenoi, right? And that was a specific word that referred to Greeks that were God-fearing. These were not Jews with Greek customs, but they were Greeks with Jewish customs. They had cast off their own beliefs and had begun to follow God. The message of Jesus had finally spread to the furthest corners of the world. And so Jesus said, I'm ready. But when he said the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, it's, it's like many things that Jesus said. It wasn't one statement. It wasn't just, yes, my time is here to be recognized as the Son of God. It was that. But it was also, my time has come to fulfill what God has called me to do. I'm ready to die. The fulfillment of my ministry is here. This is the hour of the Son of Man, Jesus' death. See, he was revealed as the Messiah, as the triumphal entry. And he was the Messiah, not of just the Jews. That's what they expected, but that's not who he was. He was the Messiah of Jew and Gentile, of Greek and Jew. And it was time for him to complete his ministry by conquering sin and death through his death and resurrection. It was time for him to become the Messiah. Not the Messiah that some people thought he was, but who God his Father had called him to be. And so John spends the rest of this chapter explaining why. Why was Jesus here? Why did he come? What was his purpose? We've read through John multiple times 
we get the same message over and over and over. What is the point of the book of John? That Jesus Christ is Lord. No other gospel points so clearly to Jesus being God. And so he says, I tell you the solemn truth. This is Jesus speaking. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. Now, I, I want to pause here for a second because as I was reading this, I was like, well, unless it ends up in my stomach. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot of kernels that end up in popcorn, I'm just saying. But Jesus is talking not about earthly food, but about his ministry. Unless a kernel of wheat falls onto the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. As the wheat grows and seeds, and then grows and seeds, and then grows and seeds, much is produced from a single grain. The one who loves his life destroys it. And the one who hates his life in this world guards it for eternal life. If anyone wants to serve me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be too. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And this next verse is interesting. Because oftentimes we have an image of who Jesus was. This perfect man, which he was. But the second word there, he was a perfect man. And so Jesus says, now my soul is greatly distressed. And what should I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No, but for this very reason I have come to this hour. Jesus was a man. He was still concerned about his death. Jesus had never tasted death before. And Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew the story, the beginning, the middle, and the end. He knew the punishment that he was about to undergo. And he said, my soul is greatly distressed, but should I just say, God, take this from me? No. But for this very reason, I have come to this hour. How often do we do the same thing? Do we see the trials, the tribulations, and the tests that are ahead of us? And instead of saying, God, you brought me here. You obviously have a reason for me to be here, and I trust you. I'll be like, God, no, I don't want this. This is hard. Right? God brings us places, and Jesus is recognizing that. He said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, the crowd that stood there and heard the voice said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, this voice did not come for my benefit, but for yours. For now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate clearly what kind of death he was going to die. So they knew that he was talking about dying. The crowd understood that Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to die shortly, but I'm coming back. I will be raised up to bring all the world to myself. But I find interesting the response of the people to hearing the voice of God. Because there's two very distinct differences. You have people that understood who Jesus was. And their response, oh my gosh, the angel of the Lord has spoken. God has glorified his name. And there were those who said, oh, that was some thunder. 
And so again, how often do we in our own lives pray, God, speak to me, reveal yourself to me. And then we go, oh, that was thunder. That was cool. Are we listening to the voice of God? There were so many small moments in this chapter where people have the opportunity to acknowledge who Jesus is, to recognize who he is and what he's done, and they don't time and time again. Just like we saw in the beginning, there are three responses. There is the response of, yes, Lord, of Mary, who honors God. There is the response of the crowd, which was to deny him. They didn't accept him for who he was. They didn't say, well, you're, you're my God. Or excuse me, they rejected him for who he was. They didn't say, you're my God. They said, you're my Messiah, right? You're coming to free us from Rome. You're coming to do the things I want you to do. Or you have the Jewish leaders who denied Christ. You are not the Messiah. So again, in this moment, we have the crowd that said, oh, an angel has spoken. Or that was just thunder. You didn't hear anything. Keep on moving. Jesus says in the following verses, the crowd responded, we have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You know how Jesus responds? Completely ignores it. Jesus has spent his entire ministry calling himself the Son of Man, telling people who he is. He has said that he is the Son of God, that he has come to do God's will. His Father above has sent him. And so at this last moment, this is Jesus' last moment for public ministry, he expects that you know who he is. So his response is not, oh, I am the Son of Man. It is, the light is with you for a little while longer. So walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. And when Jesus said these things, he went away and hid himself from them. See, Jesus calls us very clearly to lay down our lives and follow him. In the thunder and the angel's voice, he is calling us to acknowledge the angel's voice. We are to know who he is. He doesn't need to tell us again. And we have the light. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm at home and I'm like, did I shut off the stove? I can go to the stove and see, yes, the stove is turned off. But if I leave my house and I go to a movie and I'm like, oh, no, did I turn off the stove? Then I spend the entire movie going, oh, my gosh, did I turn off the stove? Suddenly, I'm so lost away from the things that I should be doing, and I'm so focused on this other thing. And Jesus is really clear, walk in the light while you have it, so that the darkness will not overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. I'm with you for a little while longer, so know me while I'm here, because it's going to be a whole lot harder when I'm not. You see my miracles. You heard the voice from heaven just now. Walk in the light. You believe in the light 
so that you may become sons of the light. But the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders responded. This is verse 36. Although Jesus had performed so many miraculous signs before them, they still refused to believe in him. So that the word of the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. He said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they couldn't believe because, again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn to me that I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess Jesus to be the Christ so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. There is so much here. We could spend three sermons just preaching through that chunk of text. But I want you to think about the Jewish response. Right On the one hand, God hardened their hearts. But much like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, they had had chance after chance after chance after chance to soften their own heart. And finally, God said, I will be glorified. And even then, some leaders believed in their heart. But they were more worried with the things of man. And so they said, well, you're not God. He is God. He really is God. But you're not God. You're not God. I believe in you. They cared more about being thrown out of the synagogue than they did about the truth of who God was. This is a lack of trust. There was a hardness of their hearts. There was a hardness that God gave, and they still had a choice. And many believed, but would not confess. And so we end the book of, or excuse me, chapter 12 in the book of John with this final explanation. Now, what we don't know is where did Jesus give this final exclamation? It's widely believed that this was probably Jesus preaching in the synagogue during the week he was in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. But this was not counted. That In the end of John, where, I, where we just finished, right before the Jews said they didn't believe, it said Jesus went away and hid themselves. That is the end of Jesus' public ministry. In every, it's, it's actually kind of frustrating. I love reading commentaries. I love listening to thoughts that believers that have existed far older than I uh, have about the Bible and, and learning things and and it is so difficult because if you read commentary, most of them end in verse um, 35. There's still like 20 verses left. But that was the end of Jesus' public ministry. And the rest is the response. But the, the part that I found most impactful in my life this week was this final explanation. John 12, 44 through 50. Jesus shouted out, the one who believes in me does not believe in me, but the one who sent me. And the one who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not obey them, I don't judge them. For I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now the one who rejects me and does not accept my words has a judge. The words I have spoken will judge him at the last day. 
For I have not spoken from my own authority, but what the Father himself who sent me has commanded me what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Thus the things I say, I say just as the Father had told me. And that is the last teaching we get. What is this saying? This sums up all of Jesus' teaching in the entire book of John. Number one, Jesus is the image of the Father. When we look at Jesus, we see the Father. Jesus is very clear here that he is the Son of God, but he is also God. If you see me, you see the Father. And we as his followers are called to live according to the way he lived. I don't know how many of you guys have heard this, but I preach this in our youth group. I have heard this all my life growing up, is that when I want people to see, when they see me, I want them to see Jesus. Right? What is your reflection showing? Is it a reflection of the sun or the world around you? But Jesus isn't just an image of the Father. He came to bring light to the darkness. For the second time in the same chapter, Jesus uses the imagery of light and darkness. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. And then we get two kind of contradictory statements, it seems like. If anyone hears my words and does not obey them, I don't judge him. For I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is reiterating what he said in John three seventeen, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. See, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time were so caught up in the minutia of the law. Every little commandment, every grain of rice. See, they took God and they put him in a box. And then they drew a line around that box and said, if you step over that line, that's sin. But Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn you. I didn't come to draw lines on boxes. I came to save the world to bring redemption from sin. I came to be a conqueror, but not of Rome, of sin and of death and of the ruler of this world who will be cast out at this point. Jesus says he will have judgment. In verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not accept my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will be judge him at the last day. This is when we, stand, when we stand before God in the great white throne of judgment. There will be judgment of the living and the dead. And I thank God that we will be able to stand blameless. Not because of anything we've done. But because we have a God who died for us. So that our name could be written in the Lamb's book of life. The one who rejects me and does not accept my words has a judge. Those very words will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken from my own authority, but the Father himself who sent me has commanded me. See, following Jesus' commands and example leads to eternal life. Just as the judgment leads to eternal damnation at the throne of judgment. This is a chapter of contrast, of either or, of multiple choice, of how do we respond, of 
What is our reflection? We have some choices. We can deny Christ. We can harden our hearts and turn away from Jesus, rejecting the things he said, and try to find our own way. Right? The Jewish leaders of this day did this very thing. They rejected Jesus and everything that he taught. They said, you are not the Messiah. You are not my God. And today, we see this time and time again from people all over the world saying, it's not Jesus. Jesus isn't the way. You know, maybe it's Buddha. Maybe it's uh, Krishna. Maybe it's uh, Shiva. Maybe it's me. One of the greatest religions that we see grow in today's modern day and age is I'm God. I make my own decisions. I don't need a God to tell me what to do. What did Jesus say? If you reject my words, they will judge you on that last day. These Jewish leaders saw the miracles that were produced and walked away. Could you imagine seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and your response is, I need to kill Lazarus? But yet, how often do we do this? Very seriously, how often do we hear of a miracle that God has done, and rather than saying, praise you, Lord, for you are good, we're like, I didn't see it. You're telling me that God really did a miracle? Really? Oh, no, he's a heretic. God didn't use him. That was of, of the devil, right? Oh, you're, you're telling me that, that, that this guy had a shorter leg and a longer, no, no, it's all special effects. Let me tell you about it, right? So what they do is they take the leg and they pull it and he's just sitting a certain way, but it's not real. All we do is we doubt. We deny what God has done. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be shrewd as serpents and innocent as lambs, but we should not deny the movement of Christ. When your brother comes to you and says, you know, I had a headache. And I got prayer at church on Sunday, and my headache went away. The response should not be, did you really have it? Well, maybe it was just, you know, did you take Tylenol? <laughs> Tylenol is really good for a headache. Oh, it was just the Tylenol kick. Okay, cool, cool. It wasn't really God. Why do we seek to deny the movement of God? When God says, no, I want you to accept me, to follow me, to walk out in boldness all that I have called you to do. And yet we respond like the Jewish leaders and deny who he is. And then the second is the rejection of the crowd. See, these were the Jews that believed but didn't acknowledge. Right? They knew who God was. But they were so afraid of the response of man, of being thrown out, of being ridiculed in society. They're like, oh, yeah. No, he's not. He's not God. He's not Christ. He's not Christ. I, I do believe he is, but I'm not going to let anyone else know. But it's also the Jews that shouted, Hoshana. How often as Christians do we try and make Jesus into what we want him to be? Right? I, I have my little genie Jesus on my Bible app, and I can pull it out, and I can say, well, I want this, and, and God, please give me this, and, and God, please give me that. God, do this for me. 
when Jesus' response was, should I say, God, take this from me? No. God brought me here for this moment. These Jews expected Jesus to be something that he wasn't, and he repeatedly told them, I came not to bring an earthly kingdom. I am not that guy. I am not here to overthrow Rome. I am not here to cause death and destruction. I am here to save you from death and destruction. And yet the Christians of that church still, excuse me, the Jews that were there at that time still cried out, save us, save us from the Romans, save us now. Had they learned nothing? Had they heard nothing? Obviously not, because in a couple chapters, we're going to hear of a crowd who shouts, crucify him. Why did they shout crucify him? Because he didn't, they didn't get what they wanted. How often do we say to God, God, you are my God. Now give me this. And then we don't get it and we're like, are you really my God? Thanks, God. We can't make Jesus who we want him to be. We can't reject who he is and try to make him something else. We have to be Mary, accepting Jesus for who he was, following the example that he set, living according to the commands that he gave. These are the disciples. What did, what did Jesus say specifically? He said, if anyone follows what I say, they will have eternal life. I know that his command is eternal life. Thus, the things I say, I say just as the Father had told me. Well, you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. What is your reflection? What does your life show? Right, this is not a question of your innermost being, of your heart. This is a question of your outward being. Because those Jewish leaders, in their inward being, believed but their outward lives told a different story. You cannot only follow Jesus with your mind and your heart. You have to follow Jesus with your actions. It requires movement. What did Jesus say? Those who what? Follow me. We have this idea as Christians, we get so caught up in, in the 2,000-year gap that we forget that those words literally meant follow, walk this way. Don't live like the world. One of my favorite moments uh, in, in youth group, we've been watching The Chosen and reading the Gospels as we watch through The Chosen. And my favorite moment so far is in season one, episode nine when they're going to the, the Samaritan village and they're, they're like, okay, so Jesus, the map says we go this way. And Jesus is like, no, we're going to go this way. And they're like, no, 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 the, the map clearly says it's much faster. You know, we have to walk around Samaria. We're not going to go that way. And Jesus is like, no, we're, we're going this way. And they're like, wait a second, Jesus, why? why wait, why do you want to go that way? And they all start clamoring, why, Jesus, Why? And Jesus' response is my favorite moment in the entire show. If you're going to keep asking questions every time I ask you to do something uncomfortable, this is going to get real annoying for the both of us. 
how often is that our lives? We get to the hard place. We sing, I want to be tried by fire. I want to be purified. I want to be set apart and holy and different. And we get to that place where God's like, fine, you want it? I'm going to give it to you. You want to be called a disciple? Let me tell you, my disciples do what I do. Jesus said in the very beginning of that, that uh, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. The one who loves his life destroys it. The one who hates his life guards it. If anyone wants to serve me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be too. This requires movement and change and action. This is not a verse that is only, oh, if you follow me with your heart. No, it's leave your nets, your boats, your families. Forget everything you've ever had and follow me. And yet we sit in a church on a Sunday morning and say, I will follow you. And then the going gets tough. And we say, well, God, take this burden from me. And God says, I gave you the burden for a reason. Maybe you should start thinking about why. Maybe you should start living like you have a God who has a plan, not like a person who has a plan. What is your reflection? Will you deny, will you reject, or will you follow? We have an opportunity once again, for the light is with us. The Holy Spirit was sent down to be with us, to bear witness until Christ returns again. You know, it's interesting that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem as a victor on a donkey. How many of you know that when Jesus comes again, he's riding a horse? He is going to enter this world as a conqueror, overthrowing the enemy that has set himself against us, that has set himself against us as Jesus' followers, that has sent himself against God himself. Jesus is going to come back down on a white horse with a sword, and we will hear a trumpet blast in the distance. How many of you long for that trumpet blast? The key is what is your reflection. When that trumpet sounds, when people see you, do they see him? We have to live differently, church. I encourage you this week, read through those last few verses, 43 through 50 again, and ask yourself, where am I? Am I following this? Just every day, read it once. Am I, am I following this? Am I following the things that God has told me to do?